see you. My name is Josh, and uh, one of the pastors here. And Merry Christmas. It's good to see you today. Yeah. I heard a story this week about a little boy who was writing a letter to Jesus about everything he wanted for Christmas. And he started it off like this. It was going to be as a prayer he was writing out, and he said, Dear Jesus, uh, here's all the things I want for Christmas. You know, he listed them all out, and he said, And I've been really, really good the last six months. And then he went, oh, no, I can't say that. And he starts over and he goes, I've been really good the last two months. That's not true. And he starts again and he crosses that off and he goes, I've been really good this month. He throws his pencil down. Oh, okay. And he scratches that out and he says, the last two weeks. And he sits there for a little bit and He just kind of puts his head down and slowly scribbles that out. He looks around the room just kind of sad. and He sees the nativity scene in the corner. And so he runs over and grabs Mary. And he comes back and he says, Dear Jesus, if you ever want to see your mother again. Well, hey, this, this year for Christmas, we've been looking at John chapter one. And uh, John, who arguably is one of Jesus's best earthly friends when he walked the earth, uh, writes a, a prologue to his gospel that starts in the very beginning telling us who Jesus is as God and then takes us all the way up uh, to explain that he is the light of the world. So uh, why don't you read with me here from John chapter one, and um, I gotta get my, my notes up here. I got, uh, got distracted earlier and I closed it. Uh, from John chapter one, starting in verse one. And um, I'll let you help me out there, Rock, if that's okay. John chapter one, starting in verse one. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, John is talking here about Jesus, that he is God, and all things were created through him, and without him, without Jesus, was not anything made that was made. And he goes on in verse four, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, John the baptizer. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, about Jesus, so that all might believe through him. John wasn't the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, 
full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have received all of us grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who's at the Father's side, he, speaking of Jesus, has made him known. Well, uh, we're going to be there unpacking uh, John chapter 1 this morning. So would you pray with me? Father, uh, thank you for Jesus, and thank you for uh, your goodness, your grace to us through him. Uh, Holy Spirit, I pray today uh, that you would... uh, Help me as I teach and uh, proclaim your word. Help all of us to understand it and uh, to know it. Uh, Holy Spirit, help us know and see the things that you've written. And uh, help us apply them to our lives. Give us joy, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the things that John is communicating to us is that God absolutely loves to be with us. He loves to be with you and with me, to to hang out with the people that he loves. You know, uh, it all started this way. That's that's actually at the very heart of the Bible. It's a large connected story of God's plan to be with us. It's him telling us how it's all going to happen, how he's eventually going to be with us forever, anyone who would call on his name. And it, it all started from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden where God created everything. We saw Jesus in the beginning was there at creation. There was nothing made that wasn't made through him. And uh, in making it then, uh, he didn't do it because he had to or that he needed to, but he, God was perfect in every way. He did it because... Uh, He wanted to. He wanted to be with Adam and Eve and with you and I. And for the first couple chapters of Genesis, he's there with them in the garden, but then he gives them one rule, right? He's not restrictive. He's actually, he only gives them one rule just to be sure their love for him was genuine. He says, you can have everything in the garden. It's all yours. Have dominion over it, but don't eat from the one tree in the middle. And the garden was like a national park. It was huge. But what do Adam and Eve do? They sin. They eat from the tree. And now they go from being in a garden to being in a bit of a wilderness. And that's really what plays out then throughout the rest of the Old Testament and the rest of the Bible for that matter. But there's so much I could say here, but let me do, my, do as best I can to briefly sum up the story. Because I want to set up everything that John was just talking to us about in John chapter 1 But if we're really going to understand it, we got to go back to what God wrote in Genesis and Exodus, which sounds weird, but hang tight. I'll see if I can make it make sense. Uh, See, Adam and Eve sin in Genesis 3, but even before God deals with their sin, do you know what he does? Before he deals out any punishment, do you know what he does? He makes a promise in Genesis 3.15. And in Genesis 3.15, God makes a promise, and here's what he says. He says uh, to the serpent who had deceived them, he said, I'm going to put hostility between you 
and the woman, between Satan and my people, and between your offspring and her offspring. And her offspring, he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Now, uh, that seems a little strange maybe for us in language, but what he's saying is eventually through this woman, there's gonna be someone who, uh, Satan, he's gonna crush you. He's gonna strike your head. He's gonna fix everything that you deceived Adam and Eve into messing up. (laughs) He's gonna fix it all. And yeah, as he does that, you're going to afflict him. You're going to strike his heel, but he's going to crush your head. Let me, what's worse, a, a stubbing your toe or a head wound? I'm going with head wound. So uh, Jesus is going to win that battle because really what the promise is here is it's pointing forward that offspring, I'll just clue you in, is going to be Jesus. And the rest of the Bible from Genesis 3.15 on is tracing this promise How will this promise be fulfilled in Genesis 3.15? Who is this one going to be? I told you it's Jesus, but the rest of scripture is tracing that promise. And ultimately it's a promise to send someone to fix everything, a savior, a rescuer. And uh, we learn that it's Jesus. Well, as the story moves on from Genesis 3, we eventually get to Genesis 12. Like, see, I... Thought I could help you there that 12 comes after three. Eventually we get to 12 where God expounds a little bit more on this promise and how it's going to be fulfilled. And in Genesis 12, we meet a guy named Abraham. And God gives more definition to his promise of a savior by making another promise to Abraham. And actually it's a threefold promise. There's like three things he promises to Abraham in Genesis 12. He says, Abraham, I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to give you a great name. He says, Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to give you all kinds of descendants in your family, a huge family. And uh, Abraham, I'm going to give you a great land, a place for all of your descendants to live. Now, What are those promises about? Well, I told you at the very beginning, God loves to be with us. And these promises relate to that. See, he gave him a great name because he was going to bless everyone through Abraham, including you and me. He gave him a great nation because it would give him a people to love. And Abraham would become a great nation. He would have a huge family physically and spiritually. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're part of Abraham's family. You're included as a fulfillment of part of this promise. Uh, Third, he's going to give him a great land, and that's so that he could have a place to be with them because God loves to be with us. And that's a little simplistic, but it's all we got time for this morning. And that's the the promise he gives to Abraham. Well, as we keep going, uh, we want to keep tracing this promise of a savior and a promise to Abraham of how God's going to be with us. And so uh, the promise of a savior runs from Abraham through his son, Isaac. And from Isaac, Isaac has two sons. He has twins. And the promise goes through his second son, Jacob. And then Jacob has 12 sons. And the promise continues through Jacob's 12 sons. Uh, Particularly, maybe you've heard of the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, they're descendants of all of Jacob's 12 sons. 
The promise from Genesis 3 of a savior is going to run through his son Judah, and through the line of Judah, Jesus is going to come. But to really understand more of that promise to Abraham, and even where we're heading this morning in John, we got to look at one of other, another one of Jacob's sons, a guy by the name of Joseph. Uh, now, it's helpful here to note that all of these guys I've mentioned so far, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, they are all messed up. I mean like Jerry Springer messed up. <laughs> I'm not kidding. They really are. I mean, Abraham, he gave away his wife Sarah to Pharaoh, claiming that she was, wasn't his wife, but only his sister. And by the way, she was his half-sister. So that's weird. And Abraham also ends up sleeping with Sarah's maidservant, Hagar, and has a son named Ishmael before he has a son with his wife, Sarah, named Isaac. Well, Isaac, I told you he had twins, but Isaac, um, he showed a ton of favoritism to one of his two sons. He really loved Esau, but Jacob he just didn't seem to have much time for. And as you can imagine, Jacob picked up on that, right? He totally picked up on that, and it, it kind of messed Jacob up, as you can imagine. Because uh, Jacob then, his 12 sons end up being born to four different women, and uh, the firstborn of the one he truly loved, Jacob, uh, or, or Rachel, excuse me, uh, Jacob favors him. His name is Joseph. Jacob kind of took on some of the traits of his dad and favored <laughs> one of his sons over all the others and everybody knew it. And there was so much dysfunction in this family line. By the way, do you remember the family line we're tracing? It's Jesus's family line, isn't it? In his family line. But it's a good reminder for us then that God exclusively, other than Jesus, uses messed up people. You have a little dysfunction in your family? Yeah, I think we all do, right? And uh, the reality is God only uses messed up people because of Jesus. Well, uh, we've uh, traced all this, all those dysfunctional family dynamics, uh, generations worth, led to Joseph being betrayed by his other brothers. I told you Jacob favored him and everyone else knew it. So they plot against Joseph. Here's what they decide to do. They see him coming and they decide we're gonna beat him up. We're gonna throw him in a well. We're gonna strip him of all his clothes into a dry well. Uh, we're gonna kill him. Uh, well, maybe we won't kill him because we could make some money if we just sold him into slavery instead. And that's what they do to their brother, Joseph. I told you it's like Jerry Springer. Like this would have been on TV back in the day, right? Uh, so the ones who bought Joseph in slavery, they took him to Egypt where they sold him to a new master. And long story short, over many, many, many years, God works in such a way that he miraculously rescues Joseph. He moves him from being a slave and someone who's in prison at one point to becoming the second most powerful leader in all of Egypt. Well, a famine hits, and the only place that has food 
is Egypt because of the wisdom God gave Joseph. And so uh, when the time comes, even in Israel, all of Joseph's family who's still living in Israel, they're like, hey, we need some food. I guess we're going to Egypt. And so they go and they find out that, oh boy, the brother we sold is now the one in control. And God does some healing in their family, which is good. But ultimately then everyone ends up going to Egypt. And they end up living there for 400 years. So we're tracing this story, right, of how Jesus is coming and uh, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and because of Joseph, they all end up in Egypt and they're there for 400 years and over 400 years they multiply and they become a great nation of people. And so God's keeping his promise, isn't he, to Abraham. And they become this huge mass amount of people over those 400 years. But after 400 years, they grew so large that the new leaders in Egypt became threatened by all these immigrants who were living in their land. And they began to oppress them. And then they put them into slavery. And then the people cried out to God, hey, don't you see us here? Why don't you rescue us? And so God raises up a guy by the name of Moses. And Moses is going to end up freeing God's people. God gives him uh, kind of three jobs. First, he's gonna free God's people from their oppressors. That's the first 14 chapters of the book of Exodus. Then he's gonna lead them <coughs> back to the land that God promised Abraham. But before they get back home to that promised land, they need a game plan because, do you remember why they're going into that land? So that God could dwell with them. Well, Holy God, sinful people. Water, oil. They don't mix, do they? There's gonna have to be some ground rules if they're gonna live in the presence of a perfect and holy God. So on their way back, God uh, has them take a pit stop at Mount Horeb, or you might know it also as Mount Sinai. And at this place, uh, God meets with them, Moses in particular, and he gives them some instructions on how to live in the land that they're heading to. He, he gives them the law. Moses gets and gives the law. This is known as the Torah or the law. It's the instructions of how they're supposed to live in the presence of a holy God. And it's the first, really first five books of the Bible. So God's plans to dwell with them because he loves to be with us and he does this even there in the Sinai wilderness. Well, uh, if you're still with me and you got your Bible, look at Exodus chapter 32. Exodus is the second book in your Bible. And if you get to chapter 32, we pick up the story where all of God's people are there at Mount Horeb, out at Mount Sinai. And Moses goes up to the top of the mountain and he's gonna get these rules. He's gonna get the law of, and, of how to live and now he comes down. But while he's gone, Remember, the rules were because we're sinful, God's holy. Well, when he comes down, uh, that reality is proven. Because he comes down in chapter 32, and uh, while he's gone, they basically start a rebellion. They even draw in Moses' brother, Aaron, and Aaron suggested to everybody, hey, why don't you just, uh, while Moses was gone, why don't you bring me all your gold earrings, jewelry, and he smelts it down into a golden calf and he puts it up and he says, behold everyone, these are your gods who led you out of Egypt. 
you got to be like, Aaron, what are you smoking? That's not true. That's just not true. But that's what he says. He gets conscripted in with them. They get into all kinds of debauchery. They, uh, that's not, a, not good to talk about. Uh, they claim that this golden calf represents the gods that brought them out. And Moses, who already has demonstrated a bit of an anger problem when he murdered someone back in Egypt, uh, he comes down, he hears and sees all these things going on in the camp and is enraged. And he had, he had those rules from God. He had the Ten Commandments on stone tablets and he gets down to the bottom and he smashes them in his anger. But his anger is nothing compared to God's rage. God is so angry. And he, he basically says to Moses, Moses, get out of the way, stand back, because I'm gonna wipe these people out. In fact, I'm gonna start all over. I'm gonna make a new nation out of you. Well, Moses intercedes. He prays for them. God relents. But there is a terrible slaughter. In fact, 3,000 die in Exodus 32 in that initial round of judgment. And Moses will have to return up the mountain to get the law again since he smashed the first copy. Now, in the midst of all of this, in Exodus 33, Moses meets with God at this place that is called, that he calls the tent of meeting. The tent of meeting. And it was, this is before the tabernacle, if you kind of know a little bit of the story of the Bible. If you don't, just know Moses sets up a tent outside of town, outside of camp, way outside, and it's the tent of meeting. And that's where, if you wanted to go talk to God, that's where Moses would go meet with God. And if you wanted to hear from the Lord, you would go there as well. In fact, you can read about it here with me. Uh, go to the next chapter, Exodus 33, verse seven. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Now, in that context, he's out there meeting with God, and if you go forward a couple more verses, we get to, uh, to hear a little bit about, uh, overhear a little bit of Moses' prayer to God. You get to verse 12, Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people, bring them to the promised land, but you haven't let me know yet who you're going to send with me. Now, let me back up just really quick. Moses, when God first called him to lead his people, Moses didn't want to do it by himself. He, he was afraid to speak. And so uh, God said, okay, well then I'll make your brother Aaron be your mouthpiece. But what's happened now in chapter 32? Well, Aaron's totally compromised. <laughs> Aaron's in with all the others who've rebelled against God, and now Moses is like, so who's going with me? He feels totally alone in this moment. Well, uh, look at verse 12 again. Moses said, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you've said, I know you by name, and you've also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, Moses says to God, if, if I found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I can know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. Moses is like, God, these are my people. They're yours. So uh, I need help. <laughs> you know, that's really a good thing for me to remember as a pastor that as a church, y'all are my people. We're all God's people. And that's good for me to remember in hard times like Moses is in here, but also in 
good times when God is doing good things, which he often does among us. The Lord replied to Moses in verse 14. He said, well, uh, Moses, my presence will go with you and I'll give you rest. Don't worry, Moses, I'm gonna go with you. And uh, see, God had threatened to cut him off and uh, Moses understood if God didn't go with them that they weren't really different from anyone else. Look at verse 15. He goes, if your presence doesn't go with me, God, don't, don't bring us up out of here because how will it be known that I've found favor in your sight? I and your people, for it's not, isn't it you're going with us that makes us distinct from every other people on the face of the earth? See, as people of God, as his church, we're unique because God is with us. In fact, that's what happens at Christmas. Jesus comes to be with us because God loves to be with us. And that's what makes us unique among everybody else if you're a Christian. And that's why, by the way, at church, we should always remember that. When we come together, we come to meet together with God who's among us. Church isn't a place for somebody or anyone to throw around their weight or be a power broker or push money or whatever it is. It's a place to meet with God. He loves to be with us. And then in verse 17, the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you've spoken, the very thing you've asked Moses I will do, you found favor in my sight. I know you by name. Now Moses says this. He says, okay, God, then would you please show me your glory? He wanted a glimpse of who God was. He understood that when everything is falling apart, when everything was at its worst, the only thing that would really ground him and give him some stability was as if he could see God for who he truly is. He asked God to see his glory, to get a glimpse of him. Nothing else could anchor him. And so in verse 19, uh, we keep reading and we read, uh, he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. Now that's a pretty profound thing. Moses asked for his glory and we might be thinking all of his power, you know, all of his strength. And God says, okay, I'll show you my glory. I'll have all of my goodness pass before you. When God speaks of his glory, he describes it as his goodness. And I'll proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I'll be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I show mercy. But he said, uh, you can't see my face. For man cannot see me and live. So uh, over time here now, what happens then is the famous scene unrolls. If you don't know the story, uh, Moses, God hides Moses in the cleft of a rock. He puts his hand over it and he walks by. And after he's by, he turns and allows Moses to see him, see his glory from behind, all of his goodness, just a glimpse of it. And it changes Moses so much when he ends up coming down from the mountain, his face glowed. He couldn't look straight on at God's glory, but he could kind of get a glimpse of the afterglow of his goodness. Um, well, when God passes by Moses, he says something. Look ahead at chapter 34 uh, in verse 
5 and 6. I'll read from verse 5. I think 6 is on the screen. The Lord descended in the cloud. He stood with him there, and he proclaimed the name of the Lord. And then the Lord passed before Moses, and he proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, I want to unpack just really quickly that last line, steadfast love and faithfulness. There's two Hebrew words there, and I'm just going to bring them up uh, just to help explain this for a second. The first one, steadfast love, is hesed love, God's covenant love, his gracious love. So it involves this idea of grace. Second is his faithfulness. And his faithfulness is this word emmet. And it can, when it refers to something being spoken, it refers to what's true. To a word, it's true. So uh, in fact, when uh, Queen Sheba comes to Solomon in the Old Testament, she says, everything that was told to me was emmet, the same word here, which means everything I received, it was a faithful report, it was totally true. So this phrase, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, can mean that, in some translations, yours might even say it this way when it gets translated into English, that the Lord is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in grace and truth. Now why in the world did I tell you all of that? I mean, that was kind of a long intro. Aren't we talking about Christmas, Josh? It's Christmas Eve. Did I forget? Well, um, because I want you to see that God loves to be with us, and I think John is reminding us of this very event. See, um, in fact, we see him tell us that God loves to be with us so much that he sent Jesus. He, he loves to be with us, so Jesus came to be with us. That's why Jesus came. So you might want to keep a finger there in Exodus, but then turn with me back to John chapter one. And let's look at some of those verses again. We'll move quickly, but uh, John 1.14, John's going to explain that Jesus came to be with us. Look at verse 14. First, he says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, uh, the word used for dwelt here, Pastor Dave told us this last Sunday, is actually the word tabernacle or tent. The word Jesus became flesh. Jesus added humanity to his deity. And in so doing, he tabernacled among us. He set up his tent among us. Now, if, if you know that story we just talked about, immediately your mind goes back to saying, okay, well, after God shows his glory to Moses, Moses comes down and they begin building the tabernacle where God dwells right, not on the outside of camp, but right in the middle of his people with three tribes to the north, three to the south, three to the east, three to the west. And he's right in the middle of his people. He tabernacles among them. And here we see the word became flesh and he dwelled among us. So if you're reading it, knowing the context, your mind immediately goes back to Exodus. And that's in the back of your head as you're reading what John wrote. And then John says, we have seen his glory. We've seen his glory. 
Uh, well, since John's already drawn our mind to Exodus, we can't help but be reminded of Moses' prayer there. What did he pray? God, show me your glory. And then you remember that Moses was allowed to peek out and see that afterglow of God's glory. And his request is answered by God saying, I'm gonna cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. Well, throughout the rest of John's gospel, do you know what happens? God's goodness in Jesus, his glory passes right in front of all of us. I mean, we see it in so many ways. He turns water into wine at the wedding in Cana. He forgives a woman caught in adultery. He, he heals a blind man near the temple. He raised Lazarus from the grave. He went to the cross and died in my place and yours. We see his goodness all throughout the rest of John. Well, the word became flesh. He dwelt among us and we've seen his glory. We've seen him. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of what? Grace and truth. And again, our mind goes back. How did God describe his glory to Moses? How did he describe himself? He said, I'm a God, slow to anger, I'm merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, abounding in grace and truth. What John's trying to help us realize here is that Jesus is the same God we read about in the Old Testament. He is God. And he gives us a perfect picture of who God is. Uh, and he's going to repeat this in case we forget it. He goes on, he mentions John the baptizer for a moment in verse 15, saying John bore witness about him, claiming he was before me. But then in verse 16, he says, for from his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. Jesus, friends, is fully God. It's such a miracle that at Christmas, God squeezed all of his deity, ultimately into a little embryo and into a little baby boy who grew to live a perfect life and suffer in our place on the cross. From his fullness, uh, Paul writes to the Colossians, in him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And uh, John goes on, we've all received grace upon grace. Now, uh, this phrase gets translated a lot of different ways. So depending on your translation, because it's a really hard phrase in Greek to translate, it might read, uh, we've received one blessing after another. It might say, we've received like here, grace upon grace or grace after grace. What it literally means is we've received from his fullness grace over against grace. Grace instead of grace, grace replacing grace. And there's kind of two ways to understand this. And I think both are true. Uh, first, uh, grace gets replaced with more and more grace. And then when we use that up, there's more grace after that. And then after that, there's more grace after that. It reminds me of, um, maybe some of you little girls, you got a little baby bottle like this, I don't know. Anybody have a bottle like this? Or do you remember having one maybe when you were a little girl or if you had sisters? And these bottles, they're called magic bottles because when you take it, you, you tip it and you can kind of feed your little baby and all of a sudden, everything that was in there eventually is gone. Where'd it go? And what do I do? Well, when I turn it back, I get... Uh, 
more grace replacing grace. And if I pour all of that out, and it goes, and it disappears, and it's gone, well, then I just go back again to the Lord, and there's more grace to refill that grace that was used up. And it's grace replacing grace replacing grace. You know what this means? It means that no matter what you've done, no matter what's been done to you, uh, there's enough grace for you. And there'll be uh, even more grace for you tomorrow. It's not on you, it's on Jesus. That's why Paul says in Romans 5, uh, sin abounded and what happened? Grace increased. (laughs) There was more grace. You're never outside the reach of God's goodness, of his grace, and of his truth. Do you know why? Because Jesus came to give that to make it possible for you and I to be with him. Uh, See, that's really, uh, as we keep reading here, verse 16, there's another understanding of this. He says, from his fullness, we've received grace upon grace. And then in verse 17, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus. It's like uh, the next layer of all the rules Moses gave for how to live in the land, right? With the holy God, the law. Well, Jesus comes and he provides the way to where he fulfills all of that for you. He replaces the grace of having the law and knowing how to live with more grace of actually living it out for you and I. And his grace replaces even that grace. And he provides a way. In Exodus, God's word was written down. In Jesus, God's word becomes flesh. In Exodus, God dwelt among his people in a tent. In Jesus, God dwells among us as one of us. In Exodus, Moses saw God's glory, his goodness in part as his brightness passed by. In Jesus, we see God's glory, his goodness fully as the true light comes into the world. In Exodus, Moses was given God's law. In Jesus, we get grace and truth. In Exodus, you went to the tabernacle to meet with God. In Jesus, under his grace, you just go to Jesus. See, God loves to be with us, and Jesus came to be with us and to reveal and explain God to us. John wraps it all up, his prologue in verse 18, saying, no one has ever seen God. The only God, though, talking about Jesus, Jesus, who's at the Father's side, he has made God known. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen God. If you want to know what God is like, look to Jesus. Because God loves to be with us, so Jesus came to make that possible. To make it possible. And it becomes possible by faith. Friends, if you would uh, put your faith in Jesus Christ, you kind of have a choice. You can either choose Moses's plan and try to keep all the law yourself, all those rules, or you can let Jesus give you more grace upon that grace and trust him. And if you put your faith in him, it makes it possible for you to be with God forever. All those longings, everything you desired, it all is fulfilled in Christ. Well, um, as we wrap up, I want to draw your attention to Psalm 95 verses seven and eight. In Psalm 95, the writer of that psalm says this, 
as the people were in the wilderness, today, if you would hear his voice, the voice of God who loves to give you grace and to save you, today, don't harden your heart. But turn to him in faith. Turn to him. Don't harden your heart like they did in the wilderness when they rejected God. And friends, Jesus comes to give you grace and truth. So uh, if this might be hardening your heart to becoming a Christian, or if you are one, do you know your heart can still become hard towards God and his work in your life? It's kind of your default mode, and you gotta be aware of that and repent and turn back. But today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. I'm gonna pray, worship team is gonna come lead us, and uh, we're gonna call it a morning. Let me pray.